What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full of I think I'm full of Shit, I was so full of Yeah, I was so full of I think I'm full of I think you're full of I think you're full of Shit Welcome back, listeners, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming cop... <laughs> A board gaming cod piece about cod pieces. <laughs> a board gaming podcast about, you know it, board game. That's staying in the show. I'm not editing that out. Damn you. I'm here with my good friend, friend, loosely used right now, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm holding it together, Walker. I am here in Montreal. I am engaging in every middle-aged millennial's favorite activity, elder care, because I wasn't traveling enough. And actually, more Montreal news. There's a local hook later on in the show. How are you doing, Walker? Good. You're so close, Mark, yet so far. It's, it was very sad. All right. So we are going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Do we have to? Uh, yes, we do. Okay. And then we're going to talk about the games we played this week. And then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then... The topic of the week, which is the key events in our lives that shaped what the gamer we are today. Our gaming autobiographies. All right, Mark, this is good that this is the game of the year because now it's a contest. What game do I care less about? (laughs) Nemesis or Marvel Zombicide? You decide. (laughs) Every time I hear people talking about Nemesis... Every time I even see the box in stores, I have these brief moments of cognitive dissonance. Are they experiencing the world the same way that I'm experiencing the world? What perceptual maladjustment have I suffered such that you and I are not able to appreciate Nemesis the way so many other people are? I don't get it, Walker. It's a Matrix moment, Mark. There's like this (laughs) riffle across my eyesight and then... I, I have no idea. It was not a good experience. I'm sure I can see where some people might enjoy it. Really? You tell know, me. V- 
I, I, if maybe they they never got to play Battlestar Galactica as a child, they were neglected. Unfathomable <laughs> wasn't out yet. I don't know. I am not a fan of Battlestar Galactica. I presume I will not be a fan of Unfathomable when and if I, try, I play it. But it is unfair to those games to compare them to Nemesis. What a dreary slog. And just leaning in to all the problems of semi-co-op in not a particularly interesting way. And really leaning in to all the unbalanced victory conditions in semi-co-op games. Oh, you need to hit these locations. Oh, they're right next to the starting area? Great. And Congratulations. All this narrative intention that people talk about, which just completely failed to manifest for us. As I recall, I remember this very distinctly because of how, how much I hated the game. Once, during all of our playings, there was a single turn, a single action of a single turn, where I felt the question arise in my head, are they doing what they say they're going to do, or are they actually going to knife me? Once. One single turn, one single action, buried amongst all our playings. Nemesis failed to manifest any of the promises for me. Oh my goodness. I have thought about it several times since we reviewed it, but I've had no temptation to play. For those who have not heard of Nemesis, you wake up on a spaceship that apparently you have no idea where anything is, and you stumble around blindly while aliens attack you, and someone might be a traitor, and you have several ways to get off the ship, and yeah, lots of things going on, weapon upgrading, noise counters, all sorts of fun stuff. I said fun, I misspoke. Yes. So Nemesis, the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you get to play this week? I got to try Stardew Valley, the board game. Oh, cool. Stardew Valley is a bit of a phenomenon amongst the video gaming world. How familiar are you with Stardew Valley, uh, Walker? Zero percent. I'm, oh. I'm familiar with, like, the concept. It's, you know, like, sort of like a, you know, Minecraft sort of, you know, you're in a village, you're collecting resources, you're interacting with people. That's the extent of my knowledge. And there's farming. I'm actually far more familiar with Stardew Valley than I am with Minecraft. I have played neither, but I know many people who are deep into Stardew Valley. The thing about Stardew Valley is that superficially it's very charming and parochial. And you go and you harvest your rutabaga and maybe later on you get eggs and you make mayonnaise. It's all about mayonnaise, Walker. But then there's this deep chasm of almost, and I mean this seriously, pseudo-Lovecraftian bizarreness right under the surface level of the game. So yes, you might watch someone spending a whole bunch of time petting all their cows and making them happy, going to the village and selling the aforementioned mayonnaise, and that's all well and good. And then you notice that you happen to walk past a blood pool where the blood eels demand a sacrifice of hidden knowledge so that they will go down to Bone Town and breed more. I'm not exaggerating. There are these literally these these blood eels, they're called lava worms, but I know they're blood eels. I know blood eels when I see them, who demand a scroll in exchange for further copulation. And then there's your children that you can turn into birds, and then the birds come back to remind you that you have been it's anyway. I could go on for a long time about how utterly bizarre so much of Stardew Valley is, but many people really take to it. It's a very it, it's very much a lifestyle. One for which I have a great deal of sympathy. I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying. It's the kind of thing where, you know, you're the frog inside the boiling water. You haven't noticed how absurd things have gotten until you someone passes by and asks you what you're doing. And the moment you go through the details, you're like, 
Wait, what? Anyway, the board game captures almost none of this. So the board game is very superficially, uh, captures the superficiality of Stardew Valley, which is say it's charming and parochial and everyone's getting along and you're just raising animals and so forth. I will say the following about the adaptation of Stardew Valley, the board game. I've talked frequently about the difficulties of adapting digital media and the kinds of things you can get away with in a video game you can't get away with in a board game. The poster child for this, as far as I'm concerned, is Dark Souls. Dark Souls, the board game, accurately captures grinding, which you don't want to do in a board game, and so it's tedious. Stardew Valley, the video game, in addition to all the weirdness, is, you know, every day you got to go water your crops, you got to go pet all your animals, blah, 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 and the tedium of that is unimaginable. In the board game, this is all abstracted away, so they've, they've very cleverly sort of given you the cliff notes of the experience of playing the game, and so it's mostly just visual and conceptual cues rather than the process of this upkeep of doing chores on a farm, with which you have some familiarity, I know. However... In the process, it keeps a lot of the balancing acts of your raising crops, you have to build buildings to house your animals, you then have to get animal products from your animals, you have to socialize in the village, you have to go sell things, you get to go to the dungeon, because there's a dungeon in Stardew Valley for reasons, go fishing, all this stuff. So, so the scope is impressive in a very, very, very simple game. And so you get this feeling of a sandbox. And I played it with somebody who is very familiar with Stardew Valley. The art is delightful. They don't use assets from the game. It's all it's all original art, but it feels exactly like the video game. And that's all very impressive. The problem is the following. It's a co-op game. And many of your victory conditions rest on fishing or harvesting certain animal products or what have you. And most of those things rely entirely on only gently modified dice rolls. So you might have a chicken and a cow back home, and you might go spend one of your two actions on your turn to go try to get animal products. You just roll some dice, and if you don't roll a chicken or a cow, congratulations. No milk for you, no egg for you. And so the prospect of early on going and doing much of anything is just frustratingly impotent. Now, lots of games ramp up, right? Many worker placement games, you know, you spend the first few turns, you look down either at your farm in the case of Agricola or your clan board in the case of A Feast for Odin, just to pick on a couple of Uwe Rosenberg games. And you wonder, how on earth am I going to fill all this up? This is impossible. But then things ramp up. But your early turns don't have to feel inept and wasteful. Your early turns in a lot of Stardew Valley, the board game, feel incredibly wasteful because you've just got this cow and you've only got a one in six chance of rolling the cow symbol on the cow die to get the milk that you need. And there's not much else for you to do, so you might as well plink away at that. The dungeon works the same way. Some of your victor conditions need for you to get to the bottom level of the dungeon, which means you need 12 times to descend through the dungeon, which means you go there and you roll your dice and, oh, look, I rolled nothing. Whee! Fishing works the same way. And so the actual process of raising crops is nice because you're not rolling any dice. The prospect of making friends is kind of cool because there's a bit of chance involved, but you can hedge your bets by showing up with lots of things to bribe villagers, because all relationships in video games are transactional, we know this, except for my relationship with Alistair from Dragon Age. He loved me with the fury and intensity of a thousand suns. Also Garrus. Garrus loved me in a way he'll never love any of you. But the prospect of doing all these other things was just a very, very badly designed dice system. And so it was frustrating. It wasn't just that it was random. It wasn't just that it was difficult. It was just frustrating and it felt pointless. And you have these people who might have a little bit of speciality towards catching fish or going to the dungeon. All that that means is every turn, that's what they get to go back and do 
over and over and over again. So the repetition and the fluky randomness really undercut the rest of its strengths. And there are some strengths. Again, the sense of scope, the charming presentation of the theme, the evocation of a well-loved digital product. There's a lot going for it there. But ultimately, the experience of playing it left me cold. So it's an impressive project. And if you're a huge fan of the property, it's absolutely worth experiencing, I think, precisely once. But past that, I don't think I'll be going back to Stardew Valley, the board game, ever again. So this was designed by Eric Barone and Clay Medeiros, uh, published by Concerned Ape, which is actually the same outfit that puts out the digital game, and put out in 2021. That is Stardew Valley, the board game. I was going through all my games, Mark, trying to get a segue into that painful-sounding game. It wasn't... It wasn't that bad. <laughs> it was just so many of the where the rubber actually hits the road was the weakest part of the game. A lot of the other stuff was very, very pleasant. But just in terms of actually advancing your victory conditions and having to do these things that the game forces you to do was just like banging your head against a brick wall. Hey, maybe that's it. They should they should readapt this and make this the Dark Souls board game because that's like banging your head against a brick wall, albeit in a fun way. So Inhotep is a game that came out a few years ago. This is another Phil Walker-Harding game, and I played it on Board Game Arena, and that implementation was uh, done by Exid. So this is the actual board game itself was put out by Cosmos, and in, in Inhotep, you are putting your supplies on a barge, and the barge sails across and, and builds the great wonders of Egypt. You're doing the sphinxes and pyramids and the crypts and... It was just like sort of a point salad. It's like, I'm going to put stuff on a boat. Someone's going to ship it over and it's going to get me some points. And there wasn't, that didn't seem very much. So your option was put a cube on a boat or sail the boat. So you're just sort of in this sort of like, well, am I going to waste a turn sailing a boat so I can bring it to where I want? So I'll get two points or am I going to let somebody else waste their turn and bring it somewhere else? So I'll get two points type thing. And there was this, another part of the game where you had to make sure you had, uh, cubes in your supply so like you had to waste a turn filling that up and you could usually do that in a fairly good point where you're not going to waste too much stuff where other people are all doing it at the same time so it just, just seemed like it was just we're slowly going to get points and who's going to be lucky enough to get the one or two points more to win wasn't really my thing there was a spot where you could go to get cards and just seemed as though it was uh who got in there for, first to get the cards that sort of leaned into where their mo the majority of their cubes ended up. There was a little bit of, I could make this boat go somewhere where it wouldn't get as many points, or sometimes it did matter the order in which the cubes were in the boat, because, you know, the first cube in would get one point and the next cube would get four, but it more, more than what happened more often than not was that it would just reverse roles the next turn where my cube would get one point and the other person's cube would get four points. So it just all just seemed like this slow rise of points with, you know, not much choice to do anything about it. Would you like to hear perhaps the greatest acronym in all of board gaming? I would. This is from Brian Bankler. I can claim no credit. Brian Bankler of the Tower of Gaming reviewed Imhotep thus. And he said, Imhotep, in my humble opinion, tepid Euro procedural. That is perfect. That is exactly how I felt. I'm glad I got to try it. Like it was a game that I've always wanted. Like I was 
you know, it seemed interesting, you know, like building these things because you actually like stack them up, but it really didn't mean anything. It just was visually appealing. So I wish they did a little bit more with that. But other than that, Inhotep definitely failed for me. I played Inhotep shortly after it was released uh, a few years ago. And my impression was very much the same. I wanted the allocation of the boats to be cutthroat and consequential. I wanted there to be really serious timing concerns. I wanted the gimmick of stacking the bricks to feel cooler. But as you say, it was mostly just visual distraction. Sometimes, yeah, you can send a boat somewhere to, to really try to undercut someone's position, but it didn't really come out too much. And I found it disappointing as well. Yeah, because, you know, you might send a boat somewhere else so they don't get as many points, but that means you're not putting a cube on a boat and you're losing points, right? right? So, And that was Imhotep. I get to play Sheepy Time again. Sheepy Time is by Neil Kimball, and it remains aggressively delightful. The variety from play to play is offered through two very, very simple things. One of them is you can play with different nightmares. There are three different nightmares outside the box, and the different nightmares move in different ways. This time, we played against the Bump in the Night. And I say against, but it's not a semi-co-op game at all. It's just an adversary that everyone has to contend with in terms of the timer of the round. And the Bump in the Night scares you less often. But it ends the round more quickly because in sheepy time, you're going round and round this track, your sheep trying to jump the fence. But if the nightmare jumps the fence, everyone's knocked out of the round immediately. And so you have that's one of the things you have to balance, not just the nightmare landing on your spot and scaring you out of the round, but just whether the nightmare is going to end the round entirely for everybody. And with two players, it was really quite pointed because when there's only one player left in the game, and like many push-your-luck games, Raw, for example, when only one player is left in the game, that's when you see the real drama, when there's one person really sweating about how far they think they can push their luck before the round ends. And in Sheepy Time, when there's only one player left, you start burning more cards off the deck, which means the nightmare moves more quickly. And when there's a three-player game, it, it I, I played the first time with three, and with three, it's quite good, but the first player to bow out it feels a little bit like a failure because you're not really increasing the pressure on anybody else. But when there's two players, the first player to bow out puts considerable pressure on the second player. And so it adds a lovely little bit of force to that initial decision. The other bit of variety from play to play on Sheepy Time is which tiles come out around the board and which powers get to be triggered. I spoke last time about how there was the possibility of combos, of setting yourself up for monster turns or a very impressive series of triggering. This time, there was a little bit less of that in terms of movement. We didn't have a whole lot of movement powers, but there were a, a, a fair number of scoring powers. And so the ability to set that up and to rack up a very, very high amount of score was very much appreciated and led to some interesting trade-offs. And... It ended on a nail-biter because the player who was losing and who had been losing most of the game was the one who pushed their luck, made that risk and the last round, and it paid off, and so they won because Sheepy Time's victory condition is, yes, you can get yourself closer to victory, but eventually somebody needs to engage in what seems like a Herculean task, but you really need to force yourself to do it. I'm way too conservative for games like this. I don't think I'll ever win a game of Sheepy Time. I just don't have it in me. I don't have what's in me to be the dreamiest sheepwalker. I'm just going to have to contend to be less dreamy of a sheep. Just the name alone is adorable, by the way. It's sheep a very time. adorable game, and it, it's surprisingly good. It, it's presented in this package that makes it look like a children's game. I don't know if kids would be able to play it. I suspect they would, because the rules load is not very difficult. You play one of two cards in your hand, and then you move forward, and you possibly execute a condition. 
The scoring might be a little bit trickier for kids to understand in terms of round to round, but in terms of how you win, I think it should be relatively straightforward for a child to understand because it's literally a question. You talk about Imperial Steam, uh, Rajas the Ganges does the same thing. There are two markers and you win by having the two markers cross. So that element I think should be uh, graspable by nearly anyone, any child interested in playing a game. So I'd certainly be willing to try it with younger gamers. But Sheepy Time is delightful and really tense and cute and interesting. And those are three things that don't often go together, even in the context of sheep-themed games. So I definitely see what the hype is about. I thoroughly recommend it. Sheepy Time by Neil Kimball and Alderock Entertainment Group. All right, well, speaking about spinning around a track, I got to play another older game called Iki. This came out about five years ago, but now it just got a new reprint. And this is designed by Kuta Yamata and put out by, sorry, we're French. I was not expecting that. That was a turn. I was expecting a, a, a certain nationality perhaps to be represented in the publisher. I was not expecting to head to France. <laughs> it's this how it goes. So it has a very interesting sort of turn order sort of sequence thing that I really enjoyed. So there's this constant fear of fire. So three rounds, three or four times during the game, there's going to be a fire started and you have to like make sure you have your fire brigade and or your anti-fire number fairly high because this is going to determine who gets to place a token at the beginning of the round. So it's sort of like turn order, but not completely because now you're when you place your token, you're deciding on how far you're going to go around the village and what order you're going to go around the village. So you can go sooner in the turn, but not move as far, or you can go later in the turn and go quite a few spaces. So it's very cool decision space. Like, what am I going to do? How far do I want to move? Do I want to go before the other players? Because there's this hiring phase of all these different occupations, and some of them are very powerful, so you might want to get them before other players do, which means you can't move around the board as quickly because you want to move around the board because once you do a full lap, you get to uh, increase the level of all your all your sellers because when you buy an occupation, you put it out into the market and you put a marker on the track and if someone else visits your market, they get experience or when you go, like I said, when you do a lap, they get experience and then when they get full, you get to retire them and they get all the benefits they would if they're on the board, but then you don't have to feed them. All sorts of very interesting things going on here. So at the beginning of your turn, before you move, you have to decide whether you're going to take money or hire one of these occupations. But in order to hire an occupation, you, like I said, you have to have a marker in order to track your experience. You only have four of those. You only have so much money. So it's all these decisions on, well, if I have enough now... Do I not hire one? Do I take money? But I can't hire one because all of my markers are already out. So it's this nice back and forth of trying to get them retired and trying to keep them. And you want to retire them because then you don't have to feed them anymore. But there's also this end of round bonus. At the end of every round, you like sort of look at all the different districts. And if you have a nice matching of the same sort of artisans, like I have a, oh, a group of artists here in the same group, then you're going to, it's like a multiplier, you know, number of tokens times the number of occupations. So you sort of want to keep them on the board because you get victory points, but you sort of don't want to have to feed everybody. Very interesting game. Looking forward to playing it again. Iki. 
So you showed me Mindbug. Mindbug is a game that we got a review copy from one of the designers. It is currently on Kickstarter for another couple of days. It is a one-on-one dueling game designed by a number of people, including Richard Garfield, who arguably invented the genre with Magic the Gathering. And I have to say that Mindbug is uh, rather stunning in its simplicity. I, I, I really admire the economy of rules design. On your turn, you either play a creature or attack with a creature, and every time you play a creature, you have two opportunities over the course of the game to say that when an opponent plays a creature, no, 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 that was mine, actually. My turn was playing that thing instead of you playing that thing. And as you might expect from such an economy of rules, uh, all the creatures are unbalanced. Uh, you know, you look at your hand and all of them seem ridiculously, ridiculously powerful. And sure enough, that is by design. As much as I admire the economy of the rule space, I, I don't think this is necessarily speaking to what I want out of a dueling card game. I did appreciate the fact that it was, you know, five to ten minutes long and the kind of situation where you're trying to build towards a tactical puzzle where your opponent really can't respond. It's the kind of thing where a small number of keywords is ultimately going to be driving what happens. So your opponent puts out a sneaky creature and sneaky creatures can't be blocked except by other sneaky creatures. You look at your hand, you don't have any of those, but you do have a creature that says when you play it, kill all creatures of strength four or lower. So you play that and that kills the sneaky creature. And then the other opponent doesn't have anything that can stand up to the creature you just played, but they do have something with poison, which automatically kills everything that it fights. So you play the thing with poison, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not that it's necessarily a tit-for-tat battle, but it's just that you have to find the appropriate tool in the given context to counter the incredibly overpowered thing that your opponent just played. And so I found it very clever. Uh, it just doesn't necessarily speak to my preferences. When I, when I play a dueling card game, I'd rather have something with a little bit of deck construction and a little bit of asymmetry and a little bit of character to the, to the cards that I'm playing above and beyond just... I am playing a series of overpowered one-shots. I didn't really feel that there was a thread to be pulled on. It was just a series of ever-shifting tactical considerations. And uh, so I, I'm thinking primarily of games like Sakura Arms, which is very much the kind of dueling card game that I prefer, or like Blue Moon, which uh, each nation deck has its own kind of character and personality. If I'm going to play something with that level of pared-down tactical simplicity, I'd actually really like something like R. R is the seven-card game uh, out of Japan, which was republished here as Brave Rats, which also captures this kind of incredibly simple rule system, head-on-head -head gameplay that lasts about five to ten minutes. But there, it's less about playing the next overpowered thing and more about having the same set of cards. In other words, if you're going to have asymmetry, I'd rather it not be purely on a card-to-card -card basis. And R's symmetry appeals to me in very much the same way that the kind of asymmetry that you have in Sakura Arms and Blue Moon appeals to me. I seem to like it far more than you did. You spoke previously of the sense of building up towards something and that being undercut by a take that element, which I found somewhat odd because I'd never felt like I was building towards anything. No, well, it, you get 10 cards each, five in your hand and five in your draw pile. So that's uh, 20 cards being used for an entire game. And so there's a whole bunch of cards that you're not going to be using for that game. So you've got random cards and then you're drawing randomly off the top and it just seems so arbitrary. And the fact that you have three lives and in our game, I caused six damage to you and you caused only one damage to me. 
So you'd think, hey, so Mike must have won because he only had to cause three damage and he did six. And Mark must have lost because I only took one damage. But that is incorrect. Mark <laughs> won. How is that? I don't know. No, okay. First of all, you actually won. You deliberately played a, a card just to prolong the game when you didn't have to. And uh, as I recall, I did in the version where I won, I did all three damage. It's just two of those points of damage came from a one shot. No, no, the, the card the card wasn't damaged. It said, when you attack, I lose all of my health but one. Sure. So that's not actually damaging me, right? So who uh, who cares? What point are you making about that? No, I'm just, no, I'm just, well, I'm just saying that it's, it's, it was so random that you just happened, you know what I mean? That, that one card that you just happened to, it's just, I don't know. Well, I think the explanation is, and again, there are some interesting tactical corner cases, and it's all interesting tactical, it's all t- tactical corner cases, and some of them are interesting. The argument would have been, well, you might have had a one-shot in your hand that would have killed it before I could attack, or you should have mind-debugged the card if you knew you can counter it, or you should have kept some of your creatures alive in order to defend yourself against this this thing and killed it during your turn after I played it out, or, 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 or. I don't know whether the game is balanced or not, which is what I think you're you're trying to drive towards. I don't know if the randomness shakes out to relatively fair games, but it's all about exploiting that tactical edge to overwhelm your opponent. And I think in many cases it's going to seem arbitrary, but I don't know if that's actually true. It's definitely clever, it's definitely quick, and it's definitely visceral, but I don't know that Mindbug is the kind of dueling game that I'm interested in. Uh, It's available on Tabletop Simulator, so by all means you can go give it a try, and it will not take much time out of your life. And... I do appreciate that Richard Garfield and his uh, co-designers, in this case, Scaff Elias, Martin Hagen, and Christian Cadal, are definitely exploring sort of the edge of this game design space. It, it's an, it, an interesting way to push the envelope. Again, just not necessarily something I'd come back to. I'd happily play again if somebody wanted to, but I don't really think it's our cup of tea. You're, you're generally ill-disposed towards dueling games uh, as a rule. It's not your favorite genre, and I've, I've already expressed my preferences as it is, so... Those are my experiences of Mindbug. So on our Twitch day, which are Saturdays, we did two roll and writes, Mark. I decided that I really like themed roll and writes. Like I don't like these, you know, so clevers where it's like, ooh, I rolled a six, I pick a six, I mark off the six on my sheet. <laughs> but we played Paper Dungeons at Dungeon Scholar Game again, and we also played Cartographers, which both of them have sort of like a theme behind them and, you know, something you're doing, you're exploring a dungeon in one and you're fighting monsters. And in this... Because we played with more players, we even played with some listeners that played along with us. And with the more players, it did seem like there was a little bit more interaction because around the table, it did sound as though missing out on a gem was causing some tension. Like, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to cross off gem F, you know, if you don't get it this turn. So everyone was like sort of frantically figuring out if they could get that gem this turn and still do what they wanted to do. Same thing with getting the biggest, you know, attack against a boss monster is almost like a sense of pride. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to hit that 33 this turn and try to beat everybody else. So it did seem as though there was a bit more interaction with more players. So Paper Dungeons, a Dungeon Scrawler game, is put out by Alley Cat Games and Meeple BR, and it's designed by Leonardo Piers. Played another game of Ultimate Railroads. This was not necessarily my suggestion, but Huey and Louie are definitely all about the Ultimate Railroads. And so it was played again, this time again on Board Game Arena, the implementation by a Canadian, Alan Alaskavia. Thank you very much. And we played the Asian Railroads this time with the shared industry board and with the actual Asian tracks because 
As we mentioned during our review of Ultimate Railroads, you can very much pick and choose what elements of the modules you're going to use. And Asian Railroads introduces an alternate way to do industries and, of course, more player boards for more rails. And it really highlighted, now having played Asian Railroads a fair number of times, this is really the kind of game system that kind of sort of depends on expansions. I don't want to oversell this. I'm not saying that the game can't stand on its own two legs. It's just when I have the same rail sets time after time after time, I definitely feel like I'm playing a pattern. It's like, okay, first I move this marker here, and I get that bonus, and then I get that other thing here. And it's like, okay, I've done this before. I've been here. I've done this. Because the action selection itself, the worker placement, is admirably stripped down and very, very clear and focused. And that's one of the reasons why the worker placement is so tight and turn order matters, and you have to be very, very careful about prioritization. But a consequence of this is that all the action is on your player board, and it feels like a solvable puzzle. And I'm not saying that I've solved it. It just it feels like I'm triggering the same kind of steps because things have to be done in a very specific order. Doing things out of order makes no sense in Ultimate Railroads. And as a result, it feels more scripted than I would like. Still happy to play it. If somebody else suggests it, I'm willing to play Ultimate Railroads. But again, as time goes on, I feel like there's a diminishing returns. And I'd like to play more German. I'd like to play more American. But as far as the original Russian Railroads and the Asian Railroads tracks are concerned, namely the ones that are available on Board Game Arena, I feel like I've done those a lot. And I'm not particularly keen to go back to those. Yeah, so I'm hoping they put like the other expansions in. And I definitely want to give it a try when they're implemented, if they ever are. Yes, Ellen Alaskavaya, please, for your fellow Canadians, give us some more railroads. So it was Ultimate Railroads by Helmut Oli and Leonard Ergler and Hansen Gluck. That is hitting domestic shelves as we speak. So if you want your physical copy, you can absolutely pick it up. And it is also available once again on Board Game Arena. So I return to Coffee Traders. This is designed by Rolf Segal and Andre Spiel and put out by Capstone Games. And what you're doing is you're developing all these different coffee plantations and it is a very tight game much like imperial steam like we were talking about because you you have don't have many actions and the game only lasts three turns so you're putting out all these buildings you're harvesting coffee and i really like this sort of disconnect because no matter how how much you build up this this coffee plantation it's it's totally separate from the buying phase even though you've you've made it so all this coffee is going to be available, you might not get any of it. If you don't send a seller there and you don't have them in the right spot, then, you know, everyone else buys the coffee or maybe you don't even want coffee from that particular co-op. You want coffee from somewhere else. I just like the fact that it's completely separate and it doesn't matter what you're doing. You sort of just have to, in the selling, buy and selling phase, you have to make sure your ducks are in a row there. Sending ducks to go buy coffee sounds like a bad plan. It gets done that way. You know, the cats poop out the coffee, the ducks eat it, and they bring it to... You know, the garbage dump. Yeah, it's this whole process. This sounds like something that was described to me in Brain Candy about how pills were made. It's sounding pretty gross. It's great. So even in the buying and the selling of the coffee, there's also decision spaces there as well because there's five different places to build coffee. And with your sellers, you're not only buying coffee. This is where you have to build the actual buildings and the co-ops as well. So you're deciding whether or not you know, you want coffee or do you want more buildings? So there's like real decisions to make there. And with only three turns, you know, it's very tight. Lots of different ways to get points. Sometimes, you know, one or two tracks that really don't need to be there. (laughs) 
Sounds like a contemporary year to has, me. Yeah, it's very it's very Praga like where you know this will trigger you know several other things and you have to make sure you get all your bonuses and it's like well I built a building on that particular space so that let me go up on that track over there and because I hit that number on the track over in this coffee shop over here I get a donut and because I got <laughs> a donut that customer is now happy so he goes over to the happy line all of this stuff is happening in coffee traders so are you gonna keep going back to coffee traders 100 percent. i love all of it because there's so so many different ways to go like i said you could either go hard into selling coffee to the coffee shops and and utilizing that track or you're trying to get majority in the five different co-ops that are out there or you're doing several different things enjoy it until i think maybe two or three more plays will We'll uh, solidify it as a yes or a no, I think. Yeah, looking try- forward to trying it then. I tried a game called Magnate the First City. This is by James Naylor of Naylor Games. I wonder how James Naylor got a job at Naylor Games. I suspect improper hiring procedures. So this has a number of red flags. First-time designer, immediately going to publishing. A massive box full of unnecessary plastic. And the plastic is doubly unnecessary. Not only is it the case that everything you would have needed to represent could have been easily replaced by a tile, it would have been preferable because there's not enough room in the given squares of the map of the game for both the plastic buildings and for the tokens that live inside the plastic buildings. And so it's literally growing outside the confines of the square. And so I, I would have very much preferred a game half as big, half as expensive, and with half as many components. But nonetheless... Magnet the First City is a game about buying real estate, developing real estate, and selling real estate. Now, it is not akin to perhaps a well-known commercial property that I will not mention because Hasbro might sue me. Because you do not trade amongst players. This is purely a game of market manipulation. The market is controlled by the game, as it were. And because there is no auction, there's no negotiation, there's no real manipulation of that sense. Instead, this is about precipitating a property market crash and profiting before that happens. Because the value of property inexorably keeps growing over the course of the game until the bottom of the market completely falls out and that's what triggers the end of the game. In Magnate the First City, you play until the market crashes. It is an inevitability. You know it's going to happen. The only question is when and whether or not you can sell your property at the best time before. If you sell your property, your high-value property, the turn before the crash, you're going to make a lot of money. If you sell all your turn two turns before the crash, you'll make less money. If you sell your property after the crash, well then, <laughs> sucks to be you. And that's the, one of the key drivers of what's going on in Magnet the First City. And that part I'm not a huge fan of because it seems a little over-deterministic in terms of who is going to win. Because, again, you either decide that the crash is going to happen next turn or you try to let it ride. And although I do like Push Your Luck games, QB, Sheepy Time, I don't like the fact that so much of the market manipulation appears to, I say appears to because I've only played the one time, rest on proper evaluation about when the market's going to crash, which is somewhat random. You pull cards to determine how much the market is going to be destabilized. And a lot of the cards say zero. Some of them have higher values. And so the market can crash uh, much sooner than you expect, or stay solvent-ish for longer than you might expect. Now, all the stuff that happens before that is actually quite neat, because the managing of your cash is quite cool. Some games, you know, your money is points, and your points is money, and there's a certain value of that, like in games like Medici, for example. But in a lot of those games, cash flow isn't a problem. 
In Medici, you're never going to have a problem with cash flow. You always have enough points to throw at something in order to buy it. It's just a question of not making inopportune investments. In Magnate the First City, that is not the case. You're absolutely stretched pretty thin because you're constantly feeling the, the drive to build bigger and better buildings, which you definitely can't afford at the start of the game, and to acquire property and to know when to sell property and so on and so forth. And there's also the notion of attracting renters, which is a weird kind of dice game, which is conceptually daunting, but in practice, it's actually quite simple. And on top of this, you get this pretty satisfying SimCity feel because the property depends a lot on what's around it. For example, if you're building industry and you care about that industry being able to attract tenants in this factory that you've just built, well, that's a function of whether or not there's A, an available workforce, and B, available industry suppliers. And the way that's represented in the game is when you're trying to attract tenants, it will attract tenants based on the lower available population of either nearby residential or nearby industrial. And so somebody building a brand new apartment building next door is a huge incentive in some cases to go and build a new industrial development because, number one, the industry property doesn't care that there's residential nearby, but it does care about there are people inside. Meanwhile, the value of your opponent's residential property just went down because there's a factory right next to it. But at the same time, you get to profit from their workers. And so you get these lovely little bits of interaction there. That part I thought was really cool, really approachable, and led to some pretty interesting semi-organic property development. And so the cash management was great. The market manipulation was great. I just didn't really like the end game. I, I didn't like how, it, how deterministic it was and how consequential it could be to make one huge big gamble on terms of how the end game works. All of that having been said, it's remarkably short given the tremendous component bloat and really neat to see a city develop. It really does feel an awful lot like the SimCity-ish game that you want. And I, I do complain about the plastic buildings, but you do get a kind of visually attractive skyline. So it's definitely got impressive table presence. If nothing else, it's got a very sprawling table presence because of everything you need to set up. There are advanced rules to differentiate between tenant types instead of just having generic residential tenants. You might have students or you might have other kinds of tenants and they have subtle implications on all those interesting bits that I talked about, the property valuations and the likelihood of attracting other kinds of tenants. And so I'm very much interested in trying those for a second and subsequent play. And as I say, the variability of how the market crash is precipitated is the promise of longevity of this game to a certain extent. So I do want to try out Magnet the First City again to see whether that property crash is unsatisfyingly random and deterministic in terms of who wins, or whether it is the case that it does kind of make sense to reliably sell your property maybe two turns ahead of the crash, and pushing your luck isn't always the best idea, so that the turn before the crash is really the only successful time to sell property. So I'm very much impressed. For a first-time designer, this, is, this has got a lot of things right, and so I, I'm interested to see where James Naylor goes next. And Magnet Diversity is an impressive first design and one that I want to go back to. Nice. Mark, we've talked many times about why certain games don't get to the table. Like either there's too many modules, you don't know which ones to play, too much bloat, really bad rule book. Not very often is it because the box is too darn heavy to lift. <laughs> So this is why we've been playing a lot of Sentinels. I won't go over Sentinels of the Multiverse much because I've talked about it a lot this week, but just the fact that it's down and near the table and we can just easily get the cards out, it has just been played a lot more. So it just shows how great and how much we love this game. But what we did play and what I will talk about is the Siege of Rundar. Back to the Siege. 
So yet another loss. So that's like four or five losses. Only one win when I played solo. Uh-huh. I still love it. I think the I think the problem, Mark, is that we're just having too much fun. Is we're running around, we're killing goblins, we're upgrading our weapons, we're you know getting bows, we're destroying the siege machines, and it's like, what are we supposed to do again? <laughs> oh yes, we're supposed to be di- we're supposed to be digging this tunnel to get out of here. Okay, well maybe we should start that now. Well, the game's over. We've just lost. I think Walker. The problem is that you're surrounding yourself with dead weight. It's so so true. That's okay. I try to warn them. I mean, that's what my mom tells me about the podcast all the time. Walker, you're surrounding yourself with dead weight. I really love Siege of Rundar. It, uh, it's nice, easy, fun, interesting. There's figuring out which, how, because there's when you, when you end your turn in the center, you can refresh the market and there's three different levels of weapon. So there's decision there to, you know, do we want difficult, powerful weapons to build or do we want to just get a bunch of, right away should every character specialize or should we all just be you know masters of every trade like are you going to be good at collecting resources are you going to be good at hand-to-hand are you going to be good at ranged all the stuff happening a little bit of you know random look draw off the top of the deck but it's you know a very large deck and they're not you know swingy one way or the other so it's just like oh we got unluckily we got two catapults in a row or or two moves in a row and but it's really not that big deal i'll play it anytime definitely staying on the shelf siege of rundar designed by reiner knizia and published by ludo nova and those are the games we played this week now on to the news and why it doesn't matter walker i promised you local news a local jurisdictional hook and sure enough I offer you news from our local purveyors of legal government-approved gambling. I am not a fan of gambling. I'm not a fan of lottery systems. And I actually think it is one of the worst public policy alliances of the 20th century to associate public education and the funding thereof with lottery systems. But setting all that aside, Lotto Quebec has a new scratch ticket themed around a German hobby board game. I am talking about the Azul Scratch Tickets by Lotto Quebec. I have not yet acquired my copy. What copy? One of one copy of the Azul Scratch Tickets to give you a first-hand account. Perhaps I could even offer an unboxing live on Twitch of the Azul Scratch Tickets. Not designed by Michael Kiesling, but uh, nonetheless affiliated there too. This is weird news. I don't know, like... And they say this is this is a game produced in Quebec. It's like, well, produced is a strange term here because it was designed by a German in Germany, manufactured in China, and distributed by a company who was founded by a Quebecois. So sure, fine, call it a Quebec board game, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I confess I will be a hypocrite and uh, give them some money so I can try the Asul scratch ticket. Yeah, it's such an odd coincidence. I, I I saw that as well. And the fact that you're in Quebec right now, just as a weird side note, I thought that was a weird coincidence. And then we actually get to try them out. It's kind of neat. I'll get you one as well then. Nice. Speaking of things that are weird, how about 7.6 tons of counterfeit Pokemon cards? <laughs> wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So leaving China, these cards were found. They were headed to some other Asian port, and but they're all in Spanish. So it was like 10, it says 10 boxes, but being in the industry, what they actually meant was 10 pallets. So 10 pallets, 7.6 tons of counterfeit Pokemon cards were seized at the airport. That's awesome. That's a lot of, 
That's a lot of cards. Oh, wow. Just think of how, how much they'll weigh after they evolve. <laughs> it's true. Pokemon Rimshot. So in acquisitions news, Greater Than Games, the publishers of the aforementioned Sentinels of the Multiverse, as well as Spirit Island, has been acquired, but not by Asmodee. In fact, when um, my industry source told me that Greater Than Games has been acquired, I said, oh, of course, by Asmodee. And they, and they said, no, not at all, actually. This is by Flat River Group. This is the first foray of the Flat River Group into game publishing through this acquisition. And this is important because Flat River Group is a big mover in distribution and e-tailing and other kinds of commercial solutions. They have a weird set of buzzword industry marketing speak for what they actually do. But basically, they're in distribution and they're basically involved in getting things into retail channels, whether online or in brick and mortar. And this is, by people I trust, said to be portending bigger and greater moves by the Flat River Group. Not that acquiring greater than games is no thing, but I have been told to look for future acquisitions. And so this could be the first of many. Lastly, for me, Rocket Chip Entertainment has a bunch of Kickstarters. But one that's coming up that seemed interesting is one that's called Stan Lee's Genesis. And what you're going to be doing in this game arc is creating like an entire world. You're going to be populating with heroes and landscapes and buildings and sort of storytelling that you're this whole sort of universe thing. And it seems like it might be interesting. I definitely want to take a look at it. It's supposed to be coming to Kickstarter next month. Stan Lee's Genesis. This sounds like a superhero version of Microscope. Microscope is a game by Ben Robbins that has been out for a while, which is indeed a role-playing game where you build an entire universe. Finally, for me, A Billion Suns, the spaceship deep space uh, corporate battle game that was released by Osprey Games this year, designed by Mike Hutchinson, designer of Gaslands, has its first expansion out. This is a pay-what-you-want expansion, which is great, called Warzone. And one of the great things about indie miniatures wargaming, which I really appreciate far more than a lot of other games, is how incredibly responsive the designers are to their community. This is largely a function of a small scale. But the quick turnaround and responsiveness to community can really help the game evolve in the ways that the players actually want it to. And I quite enjoyed A Billion Suns for what it is, uh, but there were a couple of criticisms that a number of people have that Warzone seeks to address. One of them was you can't really get up to the big guns, the big ships, unless you commit to a huge, very, very, very long game. And number two, there were a couple of balance quibbles about particularly carriers were said to not really be worth their their, their cost. And Warzone uh, tweaks the values of carriers, introduces a couple of new ship types, and also introduces a new way to play that will absolutely, I haven't played this version, but reading the rules makes it very clear, will absolutely see you getting very large capital ships out with no problem at all very quickly. And so I very much appreciate that Mike Hutchison has decided to respond to some of the desires of the community in this way. And you don't have to play Warzone Zone. You can still play the original contract set of A Billion Suns, which I probably will do most of the time, but I'm interested in giving Warzone a try when I am once again able to play miniatures games, which for now I am not. And so that is A Billion Suns Warzone. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which are which is what are some key events that shaped you into the gamer that you are today? Our gaming autobiographies, because I'm going to have to give this a, a pithier title. I can't put what you just said in the file name, Walker. I think most modern file systems would Yeah, but the autobiography thing seems so 
conceited and self-important. Self-important. Don't like it. But you have until the end of the segment to suggest an alternative. No, that's fine. (laughs) So my very first memory, Mark, is one of very much shame. Really? it, It pains me to say. So I think it was probably eight or nine years old at a friend's place who had several board games. We played a bunch of them. And then the board game fight started. Now, when I say that, you might think we started to argue over a board game or <laughs> or wanted to win. But no, you see, the boards were walls and or shields. And the pieces of the board's games were the throwing implements and the artillery and the weapons that were thrown at each other. That sounds awesome. Awesome, yes. But then, you know, in hindsight, you know, treating board games in such a manner, you know fills me with such, you know, shame and not good. I think I'm wondering if this is why I take such good care <laughs> and why I have, I have, you know, sort of like the feeling that board games can last, you know, forever if you just take care of them properly. Walker, you, you were eight or nine years old. How good, oh, I know. how good were your options in terms of board games such that throwing things and using shields wasn't a better alternative? Like that seems like a fine <laughs> way, given the context <laughs> to appreciate well, not necessarily the hobby. That would be a different hobby. But a hobby time, I suppose. Yeah. Surprisingly, his father didn't think it was such a great idea. Oh, well, that, I mean, that's his problem. Many people don't appreciate our, our hobby existence. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he didn't mind the, the board game so much. But, you know, destroying, you know, ripping them all apart and having them all over the room in the corners and spread across everywhere. He, he wasn't, you know, quite uh, pleased with that. Philistine. Nothing but a Philistine, what can I say? At that age, it's weird, because I hear a lot of people talk about very early childhood board game experiences. I don't really have a lot of them, largely because, uh, number one, I grew up poor, and number two, my family wasn't into board games. I remember uh, my mother was willing to teach me chess, and I played a little bit of chess like a monkey, and I seem to have have dim memories of a He-Man board game that was bastardized in some way, because the the rules were regarded as overly complicated for my mother, and so we, we, we actually removed the key conceit. It had a rotating board. You would put your pieces on a grid, but the grid would rotate on top of other places, so you might end up moving in strange ways. Uh, we didn't play it that way, so it just became a straightforward roll and move. Anyway, these are dim memories. But my first actual hobby memories uh, very much mirror yours, at least in timing. When I was eight or nine years old, my my stomping grounds, being the poor geek that I was, was the used bookstore. The secondhand bookstore was very much where I spent a lot of my time. And I would see these strange paperbacks that alluded to hobby gaming. It, it, not necessarily the hobby game that we do now, but specifically D&D. I knew about Dungeons & Dragons first because there were these well-worn paperbacks that talked about role-playing games. They weren't role-playing games themselves, but they talked about them. And that led me to used copies, again, in the used bookstore of old Dragon and Dungeon magazines, which for some reason I read despite not knowing what the heck they were talking about. But there was an ad, Walker, an ad for a board game that I did end up getting at roughly the same age, eight or nine years old, Dragonlance. Did you ever play the old Dragonlance game? I, I think I remember opening the box once, but I never did play. Is that, is that the one with the racing dragons? Is that the, that, is that the copy that you played? Or uh, kind bought? of. I mean, it wasn't really a race. The goal of the game was to go get the dragon lance and come home. And so there was a race element. But, you know, your dragons could fight. And there was this interesting altitude system. And 
You have to jockey for position, and the advanced rules had interesting rules about maneuver and about how fast you could climb and how fast you could dive and a whole bunch of other things. Ultimately, it was wedded to a roll-and-move mechanism. Uh, but my first, my very first hobby game was absolutely dra Dragonlance, and so it has a... I have a soft spot in my heart for it. I don't think I'd be willing to play it now. I do remember, though, what was, what was really interesting, and which I, I don't know has been repeated uh, ever since uh, for good reason, although maybe you can correct me on this. It had a custom insert made out of styrofoam, like white, cheap white styrofoam. And <laughs> so you could put the pieces back in and you could actually just break off different sections so you could give each player their own tray and little bits of styrofoam <laughs> then fall off. There was a slot to hold your cards in the little tray. Anyway, I have fond memories of, of the weird custom insert. Milton Bradley's Samurai had that had the same sort of system. You know, where oh. you hold the, all the swords in your hand and everyone pulls the swords out for a turn order. It had the same styrofoam thing where when you bought the game new, you'd pull it out and you'd break apart the different sections where you everyone would put in their pieces. Well, there you go. But it wasn't it wasn't like the, you know, the the really cheap white styrofoam, it was like the sort of curved, solid gray styrofoam. Oh, okay, okay. No, no, no. This was this was really, really cheap oh, yeah, styrofoam. Like raw, like raw styrofoam. Yeah, I know oh, what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, absolutely. And but again, though, despite the fact that I have very, very fond memories of Dragonlance as a very you know proto little gamer, I still had no one to play with. I mean, I played uh, a couple of times. I seem to recall with my sister's friends. Not my sister. My sister didn't play board games. To this day, just. No interest whatsoever. I didn't. I never really had a peer group to play board games with at that age. But for some reason, I played with her friends a couple of times. I don't know what was going on when I was an eight or nine year old kid. Must have been weird. Anyway, so that's my very early. That, that is that is my birth as a hobbyist gamer, as it were. So my next point. It's going to sound negative, but it really isn't. It's like never rely on anyone. And what I mean. <laughs> DTA. <laughs> so what what I mean by that is like when I organize like a game night or 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 just like a single game, I never and I never count on people showing up. Like I sure. I, I make sure there's that one key person I know is going to be there for sure. And then if other people show up, it's just a bonus. You know, always have a backup. And this came into into play in our in our small little town here. There's a military college and they'd hold a convention every year. And it was our only convention we had in the town, and and it was uh, put on by the by the first year students, and some of them they weren't even gamers. It was, so it was a project for them, correct? Interesting. And then and then one year they just dropped the ball and said, "Well, we're just not going to do it." Well, that was not acceptable to me. <laughs> so I I went to them and I said, "I will just take over this project," and I wasn't that old. So it was this whole convention that I organized on their property. They came back to me after the fact, and I know it wasn't. It wasn't uh, done any other year and suddenly everything had to be bilingual. So that was yet another <laughs> crazy <laughs> hurdle that we had to go over. But anyway, even after that, I, I did the one the year after. So like organizing conventions, making sure that things were done and not relying on people and making sure everyone had fun. Well, that sounds like a very illustrative, formative moment. What kind of games were played back in this uh, dinosaur time of your youth? Lots of role playing. Oh, by me or at the convention? At the convention. At the conventions, lots of role playing. Forty uh, k, lots of forty k going on. I see. Yeah, my next little uh, bit of little bit of battle, little bit of battle tech. 
Yes, yes. Uh, a little bit of role-playing and a little bit of Battletech very much characterizes a lot of my hobby experience for the next few years after my initial forays. I remember, I think I was maybe 10, 11, 12, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, for Christmas, my parents got me the D&D Basic Red Box, as well as the recently released AD&D 2nd Edition uh, Player's Manual and Dungeon Master's Guide. Now keep in mind, so I'm a, I'm a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, and I simultaneously get the Basic Red Box as well as these two books. And this was pre-Wikipedia. This is one of the great things about Wikipedia. I use Wikipedia all the time. I recommend donating to Wikipedia for what it's worth. Wikipedia will tell you where to start and what various things are. And <laughs> many modern board games, you know, you pull up the box and it says, start here, read this first, or things like that. But I was simult... I didn't even know I'd been given two different games. I'd been given all this stuff to read and try to process and no real way to guide it. So obviously... Uh, like, like many children of the era, I stumbled through in a very, very, very sloppy way. <laughs> and I personally blame whatever retail employee directed my parents into this bizarre smorgasbord of different role-playing products uh, at a young age. But that is indeed what happened next. Uh, did you go through a D&D phase, Walker? I did. That was – it was sort of – like I did play some board games beforehand, but it was hmm. very – very seldom. I guess I have, there was one point I forgot to. I did have Colditz when it first came out way back ah, when. I, I remember. Yeah, when I was very young. And I remember we had this big sort of like, uh, uh, I had half, half the, my class over and we did this sort of like survival game out. And we were supposed to be camping out on the farm, right? And we we're going to be, we were shooting cap guns and we we're, you know, racing around <laughs> the countryside. And, and like, you know, these sort of things, when you're camping in the middle of the night, kids aren't going to sleep. We all end up, you know, coming back to the house and I'm determined that I'm going to have all these guys play this, this game. This is how, you know, right? how, you know, into board games I've always been. I was going to actually make my standard jokes because uh, next up is some very salient and influential formative high school experiences that I had. And I was going to make my standard set of jokes about how clearly I was a nerd and you were a jock. But uh, thank you, Walker, for preempting those comments and demonstrating that where I was being inundated with books and trying to read things, you were A, being social, B, throwing things at people, and C, firing cap guns in the woods. So I think we've got the perfect... <laughs> <laughs> the perfect differentiation between our different high school experiences. Of course, I keep forgetting, you were also a theater kid, which is bizarre to me in any number of ways. True. I did a little bit of everything. That's, I realized that's where I was going with this. So yes, when, so when high school started, there was a notice on the library door about a D&D &D group starting. Mm -hmm. And I, ha I had to go ask for permission because, like I said, we, we did live on a farm that was a little farther away. So this would require rides into ah, town. So sure. it, it had to be something that had to be organized. And I was given permission. And that was the start with that particular group of guys. We almost did everything. There's this game called Clayorama. That was fantastic. Have you, have you heard of Clayorama? No, tell me more. It, it, well, it's, it's, it's uh, you well, you, take, you take clay, like plasticine. And I'm with you. Can you. Make any, you can make any kind of creature you want. And you sort of, as a group define what your creature can do. You know, oh, it has this whip tail and it has, <laughs> well, I've, you know, made these crazy tentacles, right? All this, you know, and then you sort of give it, you know, stats and stuff and then you just battle it out. It was, a, it was fairly popular back in the day. And uh, like I said, we did D&D, &D, lots of paranoia, which is a fantastic role-playing system. Yep. And then, and then we got into uh, 40K, first edition, and it just went from there. Oh, really? First edition was roughly at that time? 
Yes. Wow. Rogue Trader, man. Uh, yeah, Rogue Trader. Yeah, back when it was actually satire. That's right. <laughs> back before the Space Marines became good guys. I, I somewhat envy your position. I mean, I don't envy the fact that you have to get rides into town. My high school was such that it was available by public transit back to back to my home, so I could stay late without much difficulty. Uh, but I envy the fact that, to a large extent, your hobby experiences at the for- formative age were in groups that were not established by you. I was kind of in the uh, position where um, my friends and I that were hobby gamers, we basically had to start everything from scratch. And so we, you know, we were stumbling around in the dark. We didn't know what we were doing. And so sure enough, there were some other things that that I got introduced to in high school above and beyond role-playing. I mean, yeah, we played some AD&D. We played a lot of Dangerous Journeys in high school, which was uh, one of Gary Gygax's last systems before he died. It was one of those things that appeals very much to a teenage role player, fabulously Baroque systems for everything, numbers upon numbers upon numbers, you know, when you think that systems are better insofar as they're complicated. I don't know if you ever went through any of those phases, but I definitely did as a gamer. Uh, that, you know, weight necessarily meant depth. Uh, call it my Vitala sort of phase. And above and beyond role playing, I uh, first got introduced to Napoleonic's miniatures. This was. Uh, introduced to me by my history teacher, Roman Yaromowicz, who sadly passed away a few years ago, but he was a, a very, very in powerful influence on me. He taught me how to debate. He taught me a lot about the historical periods that I still love, and he taught me how to wargame. That was my first wargaming experience with, with Napoleonic's miniatures. We played a number of Avalon Hill systems and a couple of other weird systems whose names are, are lost to, to, to memory. And so that's one of the reasons why when I do wargaming, I still gravitate towards the Napoleonic period. And although my miniatures gaming, I haven't done Napoleonic's miniatures gaming for a very long time, ever since I left high school, basically. Uh, but I still do tabletop miniatures gaming. So my my introduction was not 40K or Games Workshop. My introduction was the old uh, six mil Napoleonics games. And this was capped off the final experience of the of Napoleonics miniatures. We sort of did not really Waterloo, but a sort of hash of Waterloo where, you know, the geography was roughly the same, but the nationalities didn't match up. So here, this was actually uh, Russians assisted by Germans defending the French attacking during Waterloo. Uh, that was that was great times. Well, that, that segues 100% perfectly into my next one. Kingston Wargamers Association. Now, this was a group of men that got together once a week, and that's what they did. They played Napoleonics ah. and other stuff. So I played Napoleonics a few times, but it was majority the other stuff. They would have this closet full of Avalon Hill games and or other games. And eventually some of my other friends would come with me and we started to do some magic there. And and it was where I learned what I always say is valuing people's time. All of these guys were older than I was. So it gave me this sense of what we were doing, I shouldn't say mattered, but it was worth doing. And these people took time out of their day. And this is the one week where they got to do stuff. And this is what they chose to do. And you are not to take that lightly. You're not to waste their time. You're not to, you know, you know, value their time. And that's where I learned that. That's also where, when they finally closed down, this is where I inherited, you know, these tons of war games that you (laughs) saw that we, I finally got rid of. And when I, you know, started my own group where I started the same sort of thing, don't rely on anyone else, then that's when I started to do my, you know, weekly night. Hmm. Interesting. It always seems like Avalon Hill games are the ones that are stuffed in the closet because when I first got seriously back into hobby gaming, so there was a, a prolonged period of drought in my university years 
because again, I didn't have any opponents. I w didn't have the, the little structure that my history teacher had given us in order to do Napoleonics gaming. And uh, it was actually just by chance when I was visiting people in Vancouver that I picked up a copy of Kakasun from uh, a comic store. Um, and that, that was, that was my way back into gaming. And I actually found quite by accident, some, that some of my friends there were interested in trying out some of these weird things. And so that was my sort of standing on my own legs as an adult kind of sort of, I wasn't really a full adult yet. I was, I was still just out of undergrad. Uh, actually, I don't know what I'm going to think of myself as a full adult. I've always felt my entire life that I've been 12 going on 60. I felt that way as long as I can remember. Uh, but maybe someday I'll consider myself an adult, or at least maybe when my parents call me an adult. And so it was, you know, and it was the standard sort of what's the top 10 on Board Game Geek for a long time was what I was being gravitated towards. So at the time, and this will absolutely date me for when I started really into the hobby hardcore, Puerto Rico was number one and Tigers and Euphrates was number two. And that was, that was where the ranking was. And so that's kind of how I started exploring things. So how did you get into Euro games, Walker? Well, like I said, it was mostly that, that, that one night gaming that was going on. And then, and then in that case, it was, almost all 40 K all the time. I had several, uh, four, you know, four by eight tables. Uh, at one time I went for about two years or about, it was 24 people would come to my house on a given night. And a lot of the times it would be, uh, if there weren't enough tables, there was one sort of board game table and whoever was left over would play a board game. And, and then... <laughs> so if, the people who came to play 40K, their consolation prize, if they couldn't play 40K, was they'd play board games. That's right. Wow. And then then eventually some people played just came to play board games, and if they didn't have enough players or I didn't have someone to pair with, then I would be in on the board game as well. And then Games Workshop turned to the tournament format. Yes. And then it was almost overnight where everyone just said, you know, that's enough. And this is where I learned that I just was not that kind of a competitive person mm -hmm. where – where where some of the people that were coming were competitive they wanted to you know just win and mid max their their army lists or or whatever and and the other half just enjoyed you know manipulating the rules change let's do this with no magic this time or let's do this with just troops or play just and other people just wanted just to play the tournament format and then that's when that group ended and it just became a board game group a lot of people have your trajectory, I think. You know, they start with miniatures games, usually Games Workshop, but not always. And then they start exploring Euro games and maybe maybe via the, the, the intermediary of more Ameritrash-type style games, Troops on a Map, that kind of thing. I went through the opposite trajectory. I started miniatures gaming uh, shortly after my introduction to Euro gaming, a, a couple of years afterwards, because at the time, Eurogames had not yet discovered campaign systems. And so the only way to get campaign systems and get a, get a, a big taste of the old days of being able to level up a character and, and the, the, the joys of continuity was through some of the old discontinued specialist games from Games Workshop. I'm talking specifically about Mordheim and Necromunda. And that was kind of my way back into tabletop miniatures gaming precisely because I wanted, I wanted to play campaigns. How times have changed. And so it sounds just like as you were at your period of hobby development, as you were minimizing the influence of uh, miniatures games, that's when I was getting back into them. And that's when I discovered 
the Rackham games and Infinity and Infinity has definitely been something that is that I've I've continued, although not in terms of actually playing, but in terms of an interest. And more recently, it's manifested as as Indies miniatures games. And now it's the case uh, I play a lot more tabletop miniatures games than you do because I believe at the moment you play precisely zero. Exactly. So the next time I have is what I call the walking nightmare time. <laughs> so I had a lot. I had a lot more free time. And, uh, and I sort of fell into the, the sort of whole gaming community as opposed to, uh, just playing the game itself. Cause this is, you know, uh, social media explodes, everything else. There's tons of video content. There's, uh, the dice tower is huge. And, uh, I happened to go to a trip to Quebec where I got to meet, uh, Tom and we talked about stuff and I decided to make some videos for the dice tower and I really enjoyed like learning new stuff again, uh, you know, how to make videos, how to process and edit them and do that kind of things. I really enjoyed doing that kind of thing. So I did that for a bit and, uh, and then the editing got too tedious all. And also the computer that I was using at the time was painful to try to edit with. But you would really characterize it as a nightmare. <laughs> That's a strong term. No, no, just for what happened in my life at that time, why I suddenly had so much free time. Oh, I see, I see, yes. In, in times of, of personal upheaval, trying to find new projects, uh, absolutely. Whereas in, in my case, it's more about in times of personal upheaval, trying to maintain the projects that I already have. Because <laughs> some guy a few years ago said, hey, why don't we shot into a can? Uh, and that's before my life blew up. But uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we both did the same thing. I mean, we both independently did some video reviews for a while. And we both found the editing process tedious, and we we both found it uh, rather painful to engage with the community in that way. I mean, there's good interactions and there's bad interactions, and to, for for whatever reason, our previous experiences seem to maximize the bad and minimize the good. And so, I guess that the, the current product that we have is is sort of a, an indication that we've found a way to better calibrate it for our interests and our abilities. That's right. That's what I've got next. Then I meet this guy named Mark <laughs> and realize that the discussions that we had after we played games were almost as rewarding as the games themselves. And I thought this podcast format would just be a much better medium to sort of, you know, than doing videos and much more enjoyable and fun to do. And? And I was right. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. And, and I think where, where I'm sitting at now, uh, you know, looking back on the development that has, has brought me to this, this part of my hobby life, I, I very much appreciate the fact that I've been able to try a whole bunch of different things. I try not to be too boastful when, in terms of self-identification, and indeed I, I kind of make fun of people who take their self-identification as a gamer too seriously. It's like, oh, I'm a heavy gamer. It's like, oh, I'm a strategy gamer or whatever. But I, I, I do kind of self-identify as an omni-gamer and that I, try, um, I, I like to try lots of different things. Now, maybe that just makes me a dilettante, but I still do role-playing games, although now it's narrative g game masterless role-playing games, especially the stuff of Jason Morningstar and Ben Robbins, things like Fiasco, things like Durant's, things like Kingdom and other, other games of that elk. I still play tabletop miniatures games when I can, but again, mostly indies. Uh, it's they're they're cheaper and they tend to give me more satisfaction for where I am now. I still try to play con sims, historical war games, but you know, ultimately, to a certain extent, we're we're reactive. Being a hobby gamer is somewhat dependent on the people that you're surrounded by, right? And I cannot complain about the group that I, that I was forced to leave temporarily in Kingston. It's a great group of people that are game for almost anything, but it is not exactly particularly keen for historical wargaming. 
and it is not necessarily uh, particularly keen uh, for the kinds of tabletop miniatures games that I, I, I tend to favor. Although there are some exceptions. There are some people like the Handwerker and Huey are usually willing to try anything once, maybe even twice. And I did notice that when, when I first met you guys, things did seem to be what I would call situationally trashier. Namely, there was a, a, a tended preference, especially as characterized by Huey, Dewey, and Louie um, in the earlier days, uh, uh, favoring troops on a map games more than, say, auction games or other kind of standard Euros. And that has kind of been in a state of flux. It's kind of, you know, the tastes of the local group have evolved. But there's, it's still the case that, that I find myself gravitating more towards trashy conflict games by virtue of the local community. And that's fine. That's just the way communities work. Gaming is a social endeavor and you kind of have to play what people want to play. It's so true. I, I just have to say, I, I, I'm at a great place right now. Uh, I have my mornings completely free and my afternoons for my family stuff. And I've sort of situated different days for different sort of theme. We got our Fridays where we do heavy Euros. We have our Sundays now where we're doing campaign games. We're doing Mondays, which are sort of like sit and learn and sort of just hang out and do gaming. So, Everything is ducks in a row. Happy times for me, so I cannot complain. All you need to do now is uh, figure out how to sleep. I said, uh, sleep, that's optional, right? Yeah. I don't think, yeah, yeah. This is work on top of everything and the fact that this freaking guy that's supposed to be doing this podcast with me moved to the other side of the country. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and sowronggames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.